0: So I was writing a little before New Year's and um, probably aware of the upcoming New Year, I wrote a poem about one's purpose and um, what it is that we're doing here. So I wanted to read it because it feels like it's uh, related to the theme of this evening, which is Living with intention, but bringing a how to bring a loving presence to our experience uh, in the context of intention. So it's called purpose. It is easy to drift from one's true purpose, wandering in every direction except the one to which you are called, to walk alone in silence to discover the path you have been asked to find, to tend to the voice which is yours alone. Today, like every day, you are given the chance to listen, to take it. And the important question is, will you accept the invitation? It is unlikely you will, until every cell, every muscle, every dream begins screaming at you, tearing your hair out, making your body sick, doing anything to get you to listen. For it's never an easy road, rarely a simple choice. For it asks you be stripped bare of everything you know, of all that feels familiar, and of all that you counted on. But someday the pain, someday the pain of not following it is too much to bear. And the calling of this path is the stream that sings the loudest. It becomes impossible to resist the one that makes your heart sore above this troubled world, and you take your chance, realizing it's your only lifetime to a life that's truly yours. Up to now, your life was like walking through a darkened forest, living in another's shoes, but as you listen to the call, you begin to see light shine through the trees, and you make your way into the clearing and see above the canopy and behold a vista that only lived as a slim hope in your imagination. And you take the life you were destined to live, one that is fully your own. You take a life that you were destined to live, one that's fully your own. So so often I feel like we're walking in shoes that aren't really of our own design. We're living out a life uh, from our conditioning, from an idea, from someone else's idea often, from society's idea, (coughs) from who knows where These uh, seeds get planted that we uh, live out and sometimes takes years or decades to wake up from, to realize, oh, this is not really what I'm supposed to be doing here. This is not quite in alignment with my deeper purpose. So uh, at times we get clarity and we wake up to that. So and sometimes the the intentions that we have. The New Year is just a way of. I like that. I, you know, I was teaching a retreat over the New Year, and um, I like the ritual that we do around uh, really being conscious and reflecting on our lives and our purpose and what 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 we're doing here. What the point of it all is. So my intention this year um, was to. Uh, as much as I can to meet every thing with as much love as I can, Uh, which feels like a a challenging intention. (laughs) Maybe impossible, uh, but an interesting um, uh, aspiration to meet whatever arises in my experience, in myself, in my life, in my world, with as much kind presence as I can. So it might take me a few lifetimes to actually you know, work on it, but that's the intention. Um, and the intention comes out of um, a journey that I've been exploring. It's why I'm teaching this day on Saturday at the union of love and awareness. Um, of, of exploring how these the practices, the fields of awareness, mindfulness, and love and compassion uh, come together that they 're not separate things they 're not separate practices, even though we might teach them as separate practices they're actually qualities that ultimately become imbued in our presence in a heart filled presence, and we learn how to move through the world where uh, we bring a presence that's loving and kind and compassionate to ourselves and to others. So often when we hear about or you read about the teachings of Metta that the Buddha talks about, these teachings of, of love and kindness, it's often taught in relationship to other people to bring kind, loving, presence to ourselves, to loved ones, to people we know, people we don't know, our enemies. Um, The aspect of metta that I'm interested in, metta just literally means friendship or kindness. The the aspect of metta that I'm more interested in, or as as interested in, is how we bring that same presence to our everyday experience, the full range of our experience, (coughs) every facet of of, of our inner world. Our feelings, our thoughts, our struggles, our grandiosity, our fears, our love, our passion, our sexuality, our deficiencies, our insomnia, and uh, cravings for Ben and Jerry's ice cream, and you know, hating a polit- certain politicians, and you know, all of it. Like, how do you bring? Awareness to all of that, and how do you bring a quality of uh, compassionate presence to that? So as I was um, taking a leak at the break, um, as we say in England, (laughs) uh, sorry for the graphic, um, I had this, this, this memory pop up. It's funny how memories, the memory I got, memories a funny thing. So of this time, it was in, actually, it was just when I found this, actually, I was on my way to my first Vipassana retreat in India. And um, I was in Kathmandu, and I was going to take a side trip with friends. It was around Christmas from Kathmandu to Darjeeling. It was a, I forget how long the bus ride was, 18-hour bus ride or 20-hour bus ride, mm-hmm. something... And the roads were basically, you know, m- potholed roads, you know, with a little tarmac thrown over the holes. And um, uh, it was Christmas Eve, and um, so it was a really rough Christmas Eve ride. And um, you know, I'm six foot, and the average Nepalese person is probably about, I don't know, five foot four or something, five foot five. So the, you know, you cramped in, your head whacking the roof, and. Um, and I was sick. I was coming down with a bug, and so I got to Darjeeling feeling really horrible and beaten up and tired. And and I realized I didn't really want to be in Darjeeling. I wanted to be back in Kathmandu where my friends were. And so I booked myself onto the last seat of the next bus going home, um, which was the back seat of the bus. You know, and um, it was I was like I ended up being bruised down my back because I kept whacking the the the, the ceiling so much. But what was interesting is I, is I made this intention, since I knew I was, it was going to be a rough ride, um, to, to, to practice every moment, like really practice every moment. What would it be just to be mindful? So I, I, had, some, I had some beads, and I, I did a lot of mantra practice, which is just a form. It was a way of staying concentrated. And I just was fully present to every bump and every, you know, people throwing up and, you know, whatever else was going on. And um, and I and I arrived in Kathmandu Christmas Day, and I felt elated. I felt ecstatic. There was really quite a turn of events from arriving in Darjeeling haggard and so almost hungover, and to, to arriving in Kathmandu with probably you know two nights of barely sleeping. But really, because I'd made that intention to be present and to be to meet whatever was happening, that everything was slightly comical, as, as it is when we turn. Our attention in that way, and the whole thing became amusing. And um, I almost missed the bus because I was taking a pee, taking another leak, and you know the bus started driving (laughs) off. (laughs) Anyhow, so it it was just a um, good—it's a good metaphor for um, the power—the power of our intention, and how that can can allow us to meet whatever is coming up in our lives, in our experience. And often what comes up in our lives isn't so much fun. You know, it's difficult, it's painful, it's heartache, it's body ache. it's surgery, it's um, you know, loneliness, it's anxiety about money, it's fear about our work, <laughs> uh, existential angst, who knows what's going to come up. But you know, it's a lot of stuff, being a human being isn't so easy. And so uh, as we move in this path um, where we're encouraged to meet what's happening with mindfulness, it's, it's so essential that that mindfulness has also within it a heartfulness to it, the heartful qualities, compassion, kindness, receptivity, acceptance, love, Rumi says, Rumi writes, God said, Rumi, pay homage to everything that has helped you enter my arms. Pay homage to everything that has helped you enter my arms. There would not be one experience of my life, Rumi writes, not one thought, not one feeling, and not one act I would not bow to. So we have all these trials and tribulations in our lives. Someone was just telling me about having a blessed life and then having some really challenging experiences with surgery but and, uh, and at the same time seeing the blessing of that, seeing the teaching of that, seeing how much humility that brought up. So we never know what these trials in our lives will bring us. You know, we, we may not wish them on our worst enemy but they happen, right? So one of my favorite teachings from the sixth patriarch, who was one of the founding fathers of Chinese Buddhism, um, Chan, uh, where uh, he writes, um, "Do not think kindness and awareness are two separate things. Awareness is the foundation of kindness." And kindness is the expression of awareness. Awareness is the foundation of kindness. Kindness is the expression of awareness. So we can't, you know, I was just reading some research. There's a lot of research happening right now about the heart and compassion and love and empathy. It's a big field of study in the neuropsych world. I was reading something by Dan Goleman, how the, The primary building block for empathy and out of that compassion is attention, attention and mindfulness. Without attention, without presence, without self-awareness, there's no way that we can have any sense of somebody else's experience. So the more we develop self-awareness, that inevitably translates into an empathic resonance with another. Because we feel in our own experience what it's like to feel sad or lonely or fearful or angst-ridden or whatever we feel. And so when we see that in another, another, we can let it in. If we have no self-awareness, then someone's feeling something, there's no resonance, there's no uh, attunement possible. And then he says, "When kindness is the expression of awareness. Out of that awareness, what comes forward is this movement of the heart. So think about a time that you were feeling the presence of love, whether it was from the outside coming to you, whether it was from the inside, whether it was in the field, whether you were touched by something, some music, maybe that music touched you, or the, something in nature, birdsong, or, bird song, or some poetry. It's just recall that sense, that feeling into that experience of love. Right? See, what that, see if you can feel it in your body, like being in the loving presence of somebody, or your loved one, or your children, or whatever <laughs> evokes for you. Experience of love might be the, doing the practice of loving kindness. Maybe being with a Dalai Lama or someone like that, some great being. Right? And just feel into what that feels like in your body. When love is present, what does it do internally? It softens. Yeah, it softens. It's, it's like a balm. It's soothing. It's opening. It softens the rigidity, softens the hardness, softens the sense of separation, it makes us feel more relaxed, more at ease. More possibility, more receptive, more open. There's more joy. There's more hope. There's less tension. So maybe you can sense into how when that quality is present, present, when we meet our experience, there's a little more capacity to hold whatever it is, especially if it's difficult, if it's fearful, if it's anxious, if it's challenging. And we have some quality of loving presence. There's a softness, there's a warmth, there's a capacity to embrace. So um, in the Satipatthana Sutta where the Buddha gives gives his primary teachings about the Vipassana practice, mindfulness practice, and he's instructing his monks and nuns to be aware of their bodies, and their feelings, and their emotions, and their thoughts, and their mind states, and the body that ages, the body that gets sick, the body that dies, the body that changes, paying attention to change, the unreliability of things. Many things are not so easy to be with. As you notice just sitting for half an hour, it's not so easy just to simply be with ourselves. Or to be with the tendencies of mind, the greed, the hatred, the jealous, the fearful. So if there's no kindness with that, it's harder to stay settled in it. We kind of bounce out, or we look for something fun or juicy or more interesting or more easy to be with. If we're at home, we're in the fridge, you know, we're in the freezer section, you know, for the ice cream or for the popcorn or the remote or the beer or, you know, whatever it is, whatever's easier than just, oh, I don't want to be with this or I don't want to be with, you know, angst, you know, stress or feeling unworthy or lonely. So, but as you know, when we, when we refuse to be open to that, either in ourselves or another, we shut down, we check out, it doesn't really work. It doesn't really actually bring more happiness. It actually brings... I don't know what it brings. It doesn't bring the happiness that we're looking for. It just brings distraction. we temporarily distract, And then at some point, we, we feel a little empty because we're avoiding what we really need to be with. The Buddha called, oh, another, another thing we, we might do is it, in the variations of what the Buddha calls the second dart. We, we have the dart of our human experience, <clears throat> feeling tired or grumpy or lonely or fearful. And then we have this and we add to it something else that makes it more suffering. Like we judge ourselves. God, I can't believe you're lonely. You've got all these friends. What's your problem? Get over yourself. I can't believe you're feeling sad. You've got you know this beautiful house. There's all these you know people dying in Darfur, and you're complaining about being sad. Like you know. So we get on our case. All of those you know, these things harden and tighten our attitude to ourselves. So what would it be in your lives to have a more kind attention? A kind how would it be for your the way you are with yourself in life to be, uh, to be a stream of warmth or acceptance or kindness. You know, um, a friend of mine tells this great story of when she was watching the Dalai Lama in, uh, in, in, in Times Square, not Times Square, um, <laughs> that would be fun seeing him <laughs> in Times Square. <laughs> In uh, in the park, and um, and he's telling the story of how he's. You know, I'm sure you've heard this story, um, where he's telling a story of you know the, the, how challenging it was for him as a young boy to suddenly be given the throne and to be the king of Tibet and the head you know, the head of the monastic order and uh, and then having to leave his country and hear about all his countrymen being you know, violated and killed and the monasteries being destroyed and hearing these tragic stories of torture and all that. So he gives this long story of how difficult his life's been, and he says, but I'm pretty happy. (laughs) He gives a smile, laughs, laughs, I'm pretty happy. How is that? How is it that he's happy? How is it that he doesn't hate the people that have destroyed his country, which would only create more misery in his own mind? Through practice, through practicing compassion, understanding, mindfulness, wisdom. So he refuses to let his own mind be tortured, even though his people are tortured. So this is a um, saying from Lao Tzu, a great Chinese Daoist uh, teacher. And it uh, goes like this. Always we hope someone else has the answer, some other place will be better, some other time it will all turn out. Well, this is it. No one one else has the answer, no other place will be better, and it has already turned out. (laughs) So get over yourself. He didn't say that, but... This is it. No one else has the answer, no other place will be better, and it has already turned out. What would it be like to live with this idea that we already have the answer. It's not going to be, be any better than here, especially with these fairy lights. <laughs> and it has already turned out, <clears throat> and it's already, this, is, you know, this is the moment we've been waiting for, you know, which to some of you will come as a massive disappointment. <laughs> some of you might think it's a little better than you thought it was going to be, but Mostly, we mostly with looking for something else. Right? We're looking for some better experience somewhere. The ego mind can't help believe this is it. Yeah. This is just can't be it. This is too depressing. <laughs> Surely, it's got to be something more interesting, warmer, you know, sunnier, you know, bigger cookies. <laughs> possible? I don't know if that's possible. And then he goes on to say, at the center of your being you have the answer, you know who you are, you know what you want. There is no need to run from outside. No need to run outside for better seeing. The center of being you have the answer. You know who you are, you know what you want. There is no need to run outside for better seeing, not to peer from a window. Rather abide at the center of your being for the more you leave it, the less you learn. So this is sort of speaking to what I'm speaking about tonight. Rather, abide at the center of your being. Rather running outside, rather running away from yourself. Abide at the center of your being. For the more you leave here, the less you learn. The more you leave here, so we often think the answer is out there somewhere, right? It's at Spirit Rock. I go Monday night, I get the answer. I'm sure it's going to be there. <laughs> they better give me the answer. I'll my money back. Um, or it's in somewhere, some college degree or some professor or some something, right? The answer's out there. So this is a great teaching from these, these wisdom teachings, these, that the answer's not out there. It's here. It's abiding at the center of your own being, at your own heart, which to the mind is a little perplexing because, you know, The mind gets pretty bored pretty quickly. So like we've been here long enough like, you know, it's a body, it's a mind, it's a heart, feelings come, emotions, yeah, yeah, yeah. So what? You know, that's not really where the mystery of life is, it must be in some esoteric temple up in Kathmandu, you know, (laughs) somewhere exciting. So there's a great story, uh, one of my first Vipassana teachers. Christopher Titmuss used to tell a story. He was in a monastery in southern Thailand studying with this great teacher called Ajahn Dhammaduro. And um, who, ironically, his teaching was, about, was, was also focused in the heart. He was a, he was a vipassana teacher, but you would, you would pay attention to your heart. Whatever happened, you would also register it in your heart. Because in, in, in Buddhist psychology, the, the, the mind is, is in the heart. The mind and the heart are one. So, we, so in our culture, we tend to think of the mind up here and the heart down here and to struggle to bring it down, the attention down. But in, in Buddhist psychology, the heart is here, which is interesting itself to reflect on, and that the mind and the heart are one. You know, so for us, you know, so we, de- we develop these heart practices thinking they're separate from the mind, but it's really developing the same thing. So we just, you know, we're very split in some ways. Anyhow, so he tells a story of he was in, um, in this monastery, and this monk uh, uh, was a sort of renowned monk um, and uh, basically spent the three years that that, <coughs> that Christopher was at the monastery in his hut, his little cutie. Um And uh, one day Christopher was invited in, and... Um, All around the room was all these teachings of the Buddha, different aspects of experience. Um, And basically, the the point of him staying in the hut for three years was his teaching was that everything I need to learn is in in here. I don't need to go anywhere to find out the nature of truth, the nature of reality, the nature of consciousness, the nature of love. It's all right here. And this, as the Buddha said, this fathom-long body we can discover the nature of things, so that monk went on to um, uh, be the um, he's um, the uh, became the um, I can't think of the Buddhist word, but the the head monk of the um, the, the monastic order in, in in Cambodia. He'd by a stroke of fortune missed the holocaust in cambodia where he lost all of his family and all of his monk friends and, uh, so went back and took buddhist teachings back to cambodia after the genocide and um was renowned as a teacher of love a teacher of compassion a teacher of forgiveness you know that even though the country had been through tremendous genocide that what he taught was compassion and forgiveness. So, um, so I want to get back to the the um, this idea of intentions and resolutions. And how many people did it, took a New Year's resolution this year? Not so many. Okay. Well, that goes the theme for this talk. (laughs) Well, just pretend that you have one. Just pretend that you really... What would it have been? What would it have been? (laughs) Right. You still have your chance. It's only 10 days away or something. So, you know, my experience of taking resolutions in the ordinary, the resolution, the news resolution, is, you know, they're mostly broken by the first couple of days, you know, the first week, you know, eat healthy or... Don't lie or be kind, you know, whatever, whatever the intention is, you know. Um, and, um, you know, it's just an, inter- it's an interesting thing that we do at this time of year to focus and to try and renew our intention. I think it's a really healthy thing to do, actually, to take time to, to reflect on what, what intentions we want to bring into our lives, as Sally spoke some to you last week, so I hear and the reason I think we do this is, is a is a is a, is a collectively popular thing to do is because it's not hard to it's hard to maintain our intention. Right? It's it's hard to to stay focused on our purpose, on our, on manifesting realizing our goals. Uh okay? anybody? that experience? <laughs> yeah. That's why every year we, we do new resolutions, usually the same ones because we keep breaking them. It's because we're human, right? and, there's, and there's many obstacles that get in the way of us you know, living with, you know, a, a clearer purpose or with um, higher intentions. And we need compassion and forgiveness. For uh, when we deviate. Yeah. So I, I went through coaching training some years ago and work as a coach in the particular school I trained with. The, the, one of the things I liked about the, the modality that they used is we would give people programs and intentional directions specifically designed to fail. <coughs> Programs that are set up to fail. <laughs> Things that would be really good for people to develop in their lives. Qualities, skills, practices, boundaries, you know, intentions, goals that will guaranteed not work, guaranteed be railroaded by something called a breakdown in this, in this methodology. And the the learning is in the breakdown. The learning is in seeing what gets in the way of the intention manifesting. So rather than thinking of it as a failure, oh, there I go again, stuck in my habits. It's like, no, it's a learning experience. What gets in the way from manifesting this clarity, this, this intention, this will? So I find that a very healthy reframe. You know, just like when you meditate, you sit down to meditate. Okay, I'm going to pay attention to my breath, to my body. I'm going to be accepting. You know, and maybe 10, 15 minutes into it, you're judging yourself, and you're checked out, and you're hating your neighbor for snoring. And you know, and it's like, what happened to that kind intention? You know? Oh yeah, the reactive mind, the hating mind, the resistant mind. The, right. And so we see that. Oh, look, and so we rather than thinking we've done something wrong, oh no, it's a learning, we, we see, oh yeah, that's the strength, oh yeah, the, the force of aversion, the force of resistance, the force of craving or <coughs> ignorance or delusion or whatever it is. So I hope you that you can see when you deviate from these intentions, it's like it's, like, it's a really juicy place to, to, to pay attention. And rather than thinking it's wrong, it's like, oh, what, what is happening here? How come I don't just live with kindness and clarity? You know? Why do I take on so much? Why do I get so busy? Why do I overeat? Why do I, you know, check out? Why do I always end up doing my emails instead of doing my meditation in the morning. Anybody know have that issue? <laughs> I can get up tomorrow morning, have my cup of tea, and meditate. Oh, just, I'll just check the news because I need to know that about the, the traffic. I need to know the traffic for work. I need the traffic, and it's like, oh, it's three hours later, you know. I know this because I'm I, I, I'm I'm a writer and I try to write in the morning. It's the most creative time for me, and it's a real practice of discipline. Okay, no email, <laughs> no web surfing, just get up and write. You know, and of course it's all on the same damn computer. So, <laughs> so <laughs> ping. Oh, what's that? That's interesting. It's far more interesting than trying to work out this poem. <laughs> Two hours later. So um, I like to read this uh, autobiography, which I've read before plenty, but it's a really good, um, I think it's a really good compassion teaching on our human nature, the autobiography in five short chapters by Portia Nelson, chapter one. I walk down the street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I am lost. I am helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out to see where you find yourself in this story. It's five chapters, chapter two. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place, but it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. (laughs) Chapter three, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it, it's there. I still fall in. It's a habit. (laughs) My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault, and I get out immediately. Chapter four, I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter five, I walk down a different street. <laughs> so, um, you know, that's like life, isn't it? You know, walking down the street, our life's going in a nice and smooth, and then we fall in the same old hole. The whole of I'm not good enough. The whole of I can't get my life together. The whole of it's their problem. If only they were a better partner, I would be happy. If only, if only my whatever situation was different. My money, my work. If only my health was different. If only my. If only if only I ordered a different body. Then, right. So. So first we fall into helplessness or victimhood. It's happening to me. So we get a lot of blame. The second chapter, we, we're in denial. We pretend we don't see the holes, the stuff, right? The over the checking out, the rage, the acting out sexually, the whatever, it is, whatever our tendency is, we pretend we don't see it. And we still get trapped. We still feel blamey. And then the third chapter, which I think is where we are a lot in our lives and our practice, is we see our habits, you know, especially in meditation. We see, you know, we pick up, you know, some fantasy thought, you know, some sexual fantasies, some money fantasies, some. And we know if we pick up that thought, we're going to be lost for ten minutes. And you go, no, 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 I'm going to breathe in out breathe in out you know, this is kind of boring yeah, what about that what about that job I was yeah, that sounds like a really great job I should apply for that job you know boom 15 minutes for a, you know you know Google office you know and, uh, or whatever the fantasy is so to, to see the habit tendencies and to see how powerful they are you know whether it's that grip to you know, check Facebook. You know, does someone know I'm out there? Does someone know I exist? Like, have I got some message yet? You know, am I in someone's calendar yet? You know, or the email pull. You know, these compulsions. They're, they're often compulsions. To see the habits. Where do we go? Where do where do we go? where do we lean? Where do we check out? Where do we get caught in reactivity and where we get lost. And that, you know, that's why we need to have compassion because we, we, we didn't ask for these habit patterns, but that's what, they, what developed over, you know, we've, we've been developing these habits for, you know, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. You know, like the, like the habit of thinking, you know, the, the, obs- the obsession with the addiction to thinking. How many people are addicted to their thinking? Yeah, right. We're honest, pretty much everybody. We're attached to our thoughts. We believe our thoughts to be true, to be right, to be the most important, the most valid, the most clear, you know. We side with ourselves. It's a habit. It's a very strong habit energy. And so to, to feel, rather than judge that, and to see it clearly, to bring some compassion to that, those tendencies, you know, if we could stop acting out in ways that were harmful to us, we would. And sometimes we do. And then we fall back into the habit because it's a habit. Okay? And, and, and Buddha's practice, in some ways, is very behavioral, developing a lot of very simple behavioral practices that lead to happiness. Being mindful, being present, being aware, being kind, setting intention, doing various meditation practices. It's a behavioral practices that's changing the neural pathways of the, of the brain. So we fall into the same reactive loops. So there's a Robert Bly poem that I like a lot called People Like Us and um, he's speaking to um, uh, the humanness. You know, I, I feel like if there's one thing that this, I've been doing this practice for 25 years, there's one thing that's developed as a fruit of all that is having compassion for our humanness. Because we're all human, I think. Well, animals too, but we're all human. And we're all very human in that, and, it's, and with, with our idiosyncrasies and our foibles and our habits and our delusions. And, and if we don't have compassion for all of that, it's kind of miserable. So people like us. They are more like us all over the world. There are confused people who can't remember the name of their dog when they wake up, and people who love God but can't remember where he was when they went to sleep. It's all right. The world cleanses itself this way. A wrong number occurs to you in the middle of the night. You dial it. It rings just in time to save the house. And the second-story man gets the wrong address, where the insomniac lives, and he's lonely, and they talk, and the thief goes back to college. Even in graduate school, you wander into the wrong classroom and hear great poems lovingly spoken by the wrong professor. And you find your soul, and greatness has a defender, and even in death, you're safe. There are people like us all over the world, those who are confused people who can't remember the name of their dog when they wake up. Anybody relate to that? (laughs) So some questions for you to reflect on in relationship to this theme, in relationship to yourself. So what in your life, what in yourself is difficult for you to meet or open to or to love? What in your life or in yourself is difficult for you to meet with acceptance, to open to, and to love? So start writing your lists now. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but to reflect on that. Like what, what, what is it in yourself? Maybe you haven't even asked this question. If you've meditated, you will know the answer to this question because you'll see there's many places that are not easy to be with. Maybe it's your loneliness. Maybe it's feeling empty. Maybe it's feeling deficient. Maybe it's feeling tremendous rapture and ecstasy because that's too unfamiliar and too threatening, too challenging. Maybe even feeling the heart open to so much joy and love is challenging. But mostly it's the more, you know, the more, more common a garden of difficult stuff. Where do you turn away from yourself? How do you turn away from yourself? Another way of asking the question where is love needed in relationship to your body? to your heart, to your mind, to your personality, to your relationships. Where is love needed, but specifically with yourself because so much of how we move through the world is dependent on our relationship with ourselves. The heart's closed, rigid, rejecting of our own selfishness or greed or envy then whenever we meet that, we're gonna reject it. We're gonna hate it. We're gonna hate it for reminding us of our own envy, our own greed, our own disdain. And when, we see, when we're able to meet those experiences in ourselves, when we feel the suffering of those things in ourselves, like just think of a time, the last time you were feeling jealous. It's a really juicy emotion, envy. Green with envy. the time you were envious of somebody? Your you, your best friend just got a promotion, you know. Or did really well in the stock market. Or found some soulmate and they moved to Hawaii, you know. <laughs> <laughs> or, um, or just something simple, you know. Maybe somebody your neighbor got a nice car that you can't afford to buy, you know, because you you're broke. And it's like, it's, and just feel into the, the, the tightness of that. It's a really painful jealousy and envy is one of those particularly knotty emotion, emotions, you know. Hard to be with. And so we get more lost in hating the object because it's so uncomfortable com- to feel here, you know. And we think if they get all this juicy stuff, it's going to be less for us, and so we feel diminished and competitive. And, it's very painful. I was having a moment the, before Christmas where I was I was I was having some, I was green with envy about somebody, a friend of mine actually, and um, and my housemate came into the living room, and and she said good morning, and, and I didn't answer because I was like, contracted, <laughs> <laughs> and she said what's up with you? <laughs> oh, nothing. I'm fine. <laughs> Reading this thing about my friend. And, uh, and then we talked later. She said, What was up with you? You were really in a cloud. I said, Yeah, I was really caught in envy. It was really painful. And, uh, you know, passed and I you know. started so to, to, you know, to, 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 to look, to ask, like, what, what is it in those moments that allows us to feel the suffering of it? Because you know? that's what allows the heart to open. It's like, Oh, ow, this really hurts. This doesn't serve me at all to be envious. I'm the one, this person's, you know, with their soulmate in Hawaii, and I'm kind of feeling, making myself more miserable. (laughs) As opposed to feeling appreciation or gratitude or happiness for them. So two more things, and then I'll wrap this up. So uh, this is a poem, uh, another poem that I wrote uh, not so long ago. Um, and it's about, it's, it's in the same theme about how we meet this, how we meet where we are. It's called, I forget what it's called. know. Um, yeah. I think it's called running from here or not running from here. Your only duty is to try not to run from here, from this. Even if the whole of loss burns deep into your soft belly, even if on awaking you feel the dread of walking into the day raw, stripped bare, and it feels like the wind will finally pierce those empty places that lay open and exposed. At times in this life you don't have a choice but to pick up where you left off, to make a cup of tea, to sit quietly in the garden of your creation, and take in the day to turn towards exactly where you are. You can always pretend, try putting on a face other than your own, try avoiding the whole damn thing, but that's a game that never worked and only burns a deeper hole inside the pocket of longing and makes the shell you've chosen to live in that much more empty. But when you surrender to embrace your loneliness or the starved parts of your being and you touch the void that you've spent a lifetime running from with delicate hands of love, the way the evening fog envelops the solitary tree without flinching, pressing into and loving every gnarled crevice, every twisted branch, Even the forgotten needles fall into the ground. This is the first step that begins the slow journey of completeness, keeps inviting you deeper into the roots of yourself, claiming your place that has always been waiting, that is always right here. So what is it to not run from here, to not run from this? to not run from yourself, to not run from who you are. To breathe into the fear or the longing. So right now as you're sitting, what is it to meet where you are? Whether you're tired, you're probably tired, end of a long day, bored. Happy, sad, who knows the whole range. If we we did it, we did it, You know, we just ask people to shout out whatever they're feeling. You know, we probably a hundred different feelings in here. How do you meet this? Cramping in your back, peace, joy, interest, boredom, restlessness. So, lastly, what I want to speak to um, is. To speak to a a deeper dimension of love and a deeper dimension of how um, this invitation to be present to ourselves, to just as Lao Tzu was saying, to not run from ourselves, but to drop presence into this moment, where we are, who we are, where we are, is a doorway to what I call a non-dual presence, a non-dual understanding. Where that quality of meeting is so full of uh, uh, an embracing, accepting, loving presence that there's not a sense of separation from that which we're attentive to, whether it's an, uh, whether it's a, a dissolving of the separation with ourselves or with another or with the world or with the situation. When we truly rest in that loving presence, we devolve, dissolve the sense of separation. So the Buddha talks about, in the the Loving Kindness Sutta, about how the mother develops this this unconditional love, this boundless love for her child. And in that way we bring that same quality to all of life. That quality in its its fullest capacity is a non-dual love in that there's no sense of separation between mother and child or between self and other and self and world which is profoundly peaceful. So this is from Nisargadatta, Maharaj. He puts it this way. He says, when you doubt, when you know beyond all doubting that the same life flows through all that is, and you are that life, you will love all naturally and spontaneously. When you realize the depth and fullness of your love of yourself, you know that every living being in the entire universe are included in your affection. When you realize the depth and fullness of the love of yourself, you know that every living being and the entire universe are included in your affection. But when you look at anything as separate from you, you cannot love it because you're afraid of it. Alienation causes fear, and fear deepens alienation. Only self-realization can penetrate that. So this, this presence that I've been talking about that we bring to ourselves in our experience is the doorway to a much deeper quality of presence in the world, where we really feel that quality of union, quality of uh, where that loving heart doesn't see the suffering of others as separate from itself. that has within it a kind of a dynamism or an impulse to relieve the pain of others, to care, to be tender, to be kind, because it's not seeing anything else as separate from itself. So maybe you had moments of this where you feeling the presence of love, maybe because you're in a new relationship and there's a lot of delight, there's a lot of joy, there's a lot of um, intensity with that love as, as love blooms at the beginning of a relationship. And you feel more open, feel more merged, not just with your beloved, but with a lot of things maybe you feel it in the depth of your love for your children, that, that, that unconditional, boundless quality. I feel a lot when I'm in nature. And I feel loving presence from, that's all around me, from the earth, from trees, from animals. I feel that loving presence within myself. And it's a very easy doorway for me to feel merged, non-separate, to feel that like union and to bring that quality from that experience outwards into the world. It's one of the most beautiful human qualities to have this capacity to drop into this dimension of love that knows no separation. And as I've been saying, the doorway to that is through how we meet in a very delicate, tender, subtle, moment-to-moment way, how we meet this moment. This experience, this life, this breath, this sound, this body, this person, this fairy lights, this, you know, whatever it is, (laughs) wherever we are. You know, you can sit here going, God, I hate these lights. It's so (laughs) attacking. Oh, it's just what is. And when we meet it with just what is, it's what is. And in that it allows softening of the separation. When we're in aversion and hatred and grasping for something else, Guess what? We feel really separate. When we feel separate, we feel miserable. When that sense of separation softens, dissolves, there's boundlessness, there's beauty, there's love, there's joy, there's peace. So I wish for you that you are able to fully embrace yourselves and the moment and whatever rises in the field of your experience. And when you don't, which will be inevitable, <laughs> maybe in the next moment, <laughs> or as you go out and someone's taken your shoes, or <laughs> your, your the carpool's already left be, without you, or you get stuck on traffic, or I don't know, you've lost your car keys, or who knows what will happen, something inevitably very soon. <laughs> Or later, but you know, at some point. How do you meet that? You know, and then notice so that the body is this great um, support, it's a great ally. It tells you when you've shifted into separation because it contracts. You feel the tightness in your belly and your throat, and your heart covers over. And it's, oh, yeah, painful. Soften, relax, breathe. Ah. So let's, let's, we'll finish the class. We'll, we'll chant arm three times. And ch- chanting is a wonderful way to, uh, to soften the hard separation and the, the tightness in the body. So breathing in. Oh. vibration melting you as you chant ah. so thank you everybody for your attention and presence and go happily and safely and. I'll be back here. Uh, James, I think, uh, who's here next week? Let me just tell you who's going to be here. Thank you. James will be here next week. Um, If you want more information about my work, I... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.